This is the second Sunday in Lent, so you've heard a bit about it already. Lent is this season for embracing the cross. On Ash Wednesday, the beginning of Lent, we receive the sign of the cross on ourselves as a reminder of the journey which our Lord took and the still same way that he calls us to follow him. The act of receiving this mark of the cross is called an imposition, the imposition of ashes. We're used to that word imposition, meaning something which uh, is like an inconvenience to us, right? Like, oh, he really imposed when he asked me to do that. It's an inconvenience. And ashes on an otherwise clean forehead or call to self-sacrifice in a culture of self-indulgence, these things do seem like impositions in that sense. But more than that, this word is also used with regard to laws and rules. A new law was imposed. A new tax was imposed. Things are imposed upon us. And this is the true sense of the imposition of ashes. They impose a new way upon us. The way of Jesus. The way of the cross. And if we are to embrace this way of the cross ever, and certainly in this season as well, If we're to embrace this new way, we must understand what it means and what it should look like. Jesus does not ask us to go in any way apart from that which he will first lead himself. And so he leads us faithfully to see and to know the glory of the cross. This Lent, we're following Jesus closely as he embraces his own cross And we'll consider how what he endures speaks to the life of following him. So far in this journey, we have sat with Jesus in the garden of his great sorrow and been challenged with his disciples to keep watch and to pray. Then last week, Tamika helped us to look at Jesus' arrest and how sometimes we too have been disappointed in God and chosen other ways like Judas. Or else we've tried to help God by doing things which we know are no good. No good for us and no good for the world, like Peter. And we must repent and commit to living as Christ lives, even in the face of trouble and adversity, to be people of healing and peace. Now, having been arrested by this armed mob, Jesus is brought to Caiaphas, the high priest. And what unfolds and what we heard read for us seems like a fairly straightforward trial, right? There are judges, there are witnesses, there's even a confession of sorts, and there's a sentence. Simple enough. But to a first century reader, this account is riddled with problems, even without Matthew's color commentary that the whole council was looking for false testimony about Jesus, right? That sort of biases our interpretation of events, gives us a hint that something's not right here. But even without that hint, people knew that something was wrong with this story. This is a courtroom drama. And anyone familiar with the setting would know that something is not quite right. There's a lot for us to unpack here for those of us who are not from first century Judea. And I probably lack some of the panache of a Harvey Specter or a Perry Mason in trying to bring this to life. 
but I'll try. I'll try and help us see what's going on here. The first strange thing is just the name Caiaphas. Just that name would have clued some people in here. Because high priest was an office for life. Once you were a high priest, you were a high priest until you died. But the legitimate high priest had been deposed by the Roman procurator, who began to appoint a new one annually. And in fact, the early church father, Jerome, was of the opinion that this role was being purchased on one-year terms, that that's why it was happening every single year, a new high priest. Caiaphas, in fact, was the fourth high priest appointed by this Roman procurator before he returned to Rome and Pilate took the role of governor. So we have high priests who are appointed by bureaucrats and politicians of a foreign empire, of a pagan religion, and that's not exactly confidence-inspiring, is it? But the peculiarities continue. This proceeding seems to be happening at night, and it's happening within the high priest's home. This is not a typical time or place for such proceedings at all. They happen in the light of day and within the chamber of hewn stone within the temple. Somebody is trying to accomplish something quietly, privately, and quickly. Of course, there are a couple of things which seem to be happening correctly. First, there are priests, scribes, and elders all present for this event. These are the three groups that were required to judge trials like this. And they're seeking two witnesses, which is what the law requires. Two witnesses whose statements agree with one another. Many witnesses come forward, the text says, but all that they say crumbles fairly easily until at least two come forward and say, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. A serious accusation of the blasphemy of this Jesus of Nazareth. Of course, he didn't. He didn't say that. Jesus never said that. We may be fooled, even those in attendance were fooled, because he did say something like that. The best lies are very close to the truth. All of the Gospels have Jesus saying something very much like this. And John's Gospel gets us the closest as Jesus says, Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. He doesn't say he will destroy it. And in that context, he'd been speaking of his own body. So too, St. Jerome reminds us that he does not say he will build it again, rather that he will raise it. It is one thing to build and another to raise up. Witnesses who agree, but truth which is knotted and tangled. Just enough to trap him, just enough to have the air of truth about it, but with no real basis in reality. Jesus doesn't rush to his own defense. He doesn't say, no, no, you've misunderstood me. He doesn't argue the semantics of the difference between building and raising up or who is going to do the destroying. He knows the work that this council has set about and he will not hamper it. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. So Caiaphas 
cuts to the heart of the matter. Who are you, really? Are you the Messiah, the Son of God? This isn't the sort of random out of left field question we might read it as. This is related to that testimony about the temple because Jesus seems to have spoken as one and behaved as one who has authority over and power within the temple. And his actions from his entry parade into Jerusalem to his cleansing of the temple seem to reinforce this idea that he sees himself in this way even if he's never publicly said those words. So are you? Are you the Messiah? Or have you just been acting and speaking as if you are? You have said so. You have said so, Jesus replies. And this probably sounds like Jesus is trying to avoid the question, not give a straight answer. Like Jesus is saying, if that's what you say, But what Jesus is actually saying is something more like, yes, but. Yes, but we have pretty different understandings of what those words mean. Yes, but I would put it another way altogether. Yes, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. This, this is the final straw. And Caiaphas tears his robes and seeks the sentence that this has all been about. And this is the last curiosity in this little court case, even as Jesus' actions in the temple reveal his identity as the Messiah. Caiaphas' actions in tearing his robes betray any illusion that people might have had that he was the true high priest. Tearing one's clothes was a sign of mourning and lament and was even common in judicial proceedings, especially in the case of blasphemy. But not so for the high priest. Never so for the high priest. The Levitical law specifically forbids the high priest from ever tearing his clothes. Not even to mourn a close relative. Caiaphas does. Caiaphas is no high priest. So what have we seen in this trial? We have seen a false high priest seek false witnesses against the true high priest, against the only mediator between God and mankind who will sit in judgment at the right hand of God is now being judged himself by falsehoods. Is it any wonder that Peter chose to follow at a distance? You caught that, right? As it was being read, Peter followed at a distance. Peter didn't want to get too close to what was happening, lest it should have any repercussions for his life. Peter, perhaps wisely, knew that no good could come of a mob at night. No legitimate justice could be found in the high priest's home. And no hope was possible for one who will speak no word nor wield any sword in his own defense. Jesus has been tried and convicted for blasphemy. But it's more than that. One commentator notes that like Jeremiah before him, Jesus has been put on trial for his unpatriotic and sacrilegious threats to the temple. To speak against the temple was to speak against the God who dwelled in that temple. To criticize the priests of the temple was to criticize the God that they served. 
This is very simple arithmetic, and it was the simple arithmetic of that day. But isn't it still the simple arithmetic of our day as well? When women who have been abused by church leaders speak out, they are not accused of being blasphemous. They're accused of being divisive. When people harmed by the church for generations seek reconciliation and wholeness, which is the very promise of the gospel itself, we do not use the word sacrilege, but we can dismiss them as social justice warriors. When the traditions that we value or the identities that we cherish are threatened, we may not sentence the one who offends us to death, but they will certainly be dead to us. Jesus comes to his own and their words and their actions betray who they really are. They do not serve God, but themselves. They are not priests of the living God, but they are priests of the dead stones of that temple. They are no judges of justice, but rather they are purveyors of evil itself. These men who have, who have gathered to judge Jesus have the benefit of all the law and the prophets to understand who God is and what the true religion of that God should look like. But they are so blinded, blinded by tradition, blinded by nationalism, blinded by pride and ambition, blinded by the God they wish they worshipped, rather than the God who stands in their presence and who chooses to endure their mocking scorn. We're still blinded by those very same things. We too have all the benefit of the law and the prophets. Now we also have the benefit of the gospels and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And yet we too act in the interests of all kinds of other things rather than the living God. Reflecting on the problems the church in the United States faces, the theologian Stanley Horwath said, they don't know how to read the Bible well because they're Americans before they're Christians. We are going to have trouble worshiping God, trouble following Jesus. Anytime some identity, some value, some tradition is held more sacred than the very work of God himself. Caiaphas, Caiaphas wanted to be a high priest more than he wanted to worship the living God. The scribes and the elders gathered that night wanted the continued functioning of the temple as they knew it more than they wanted the coming of God's Messiah. And what about you? What about us? Has the identity of being Canadian of being progressive, of being conservative, of our race or our age or our sexual orientation come before being Christian for us? Has the ambition of excelling in your career taken priority over following Jesus where he leads you? Has love for the vices which we use to soothe ourselves in this world of trouble taken away from our love for the ways of justice and mercy, which are still the very ways of God. We often want life just the way we know it. We often want things to be the way that we think they should be, more than we desire the way that God actually comes to us.
the temples we've grown comfortable in, they're going to fall away too. They will also one day be destroyed because the kingdom we wait for is a city where the Lord God Almighty is the temple. That's the only temple we get. That's the only temple we need. And it's not only Caiaphas. It's not only the scribes and the elders who want something more than they want Jesus. Because Peter's still in the courtyard. He wants to see how this will end. He'll follow so long as the cost to himself is minimal. Next week, Nestor will help us explore Peter more fully. But today, we have to confront the fact that Peter tried to be an observer when he could have spoken as a witness. That was within his power to do. He was a Jewish male. His testimony was valid in that court. He could have spoken as a witness, but he chose not to. He was afraid of the cost. He knew what the cost would be. To follow Jesus in this way of the cross is to do justice regardless of the cost. To speak on behalf of the innocent and the forgotten no matter who listens. And to find ourselves more often than not on the wrong side of that power imbalance. Because we know the truth of the situation at hand. We know that the Caiaphases of this world are no more legitimate than the ones who judge Jesus. The temples of our time are no more precious than the stones which would soon enough fall in Jerusalem. And the identities which we hold are all lesser than the identity which God has given us in Jesus Christ. The good news of this story is in the words which Jesus offered to identify himself. The vision by which all people will know who Jesus is. From now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. All the power of the nation of Israel, all the force of the Roman Empire, all the tradition of the law and the prophets could not overcome this meek lamb, silent in the face of his accusers, led to the slaughter. Lies assail him and truth is known. Mockers abuse him, but do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. Death is sentenced him, but he is the fount of life itself. The chief priest and just judge of the whole universe comes before Caiaphas, and we take heart. Because the twisted truth of those witnesses is the hope of every person who follows him to this day. That though they destroy his body, he will raise it up again in three days. And so it will be for all who suffer for justice, for all who endure abuse and scorn, for all who have vision, not for the way things are, but for the way they one day will be. Though outwardly we may waste away, inwardly we are renewed day by day until that day when we are raised with him to that new temple where peace, joy, and love will reign forever and ever. Amen. We want to leave time for you to listen to God's Spirit in the midst of these words. 
And so a couple of questions, and honestly, I'd love to hear your answers to these questions. I'm sure many of the pastors on staff would love to hear your answers and to journey with you as you discern these things in this season. So we'll give you a couple minutes to think about them now. Maybe you should take time this week to keep thinking about them. And as you come up with things, let somebody know. It doesn't have to be me. It doesn't have to be one of the staff here. But let somebody know who can journey with you in holding those things in calling you to follow Jesus and this way of the cross. So the first question is, what ways or things have you held sacred which Jesus is calling you to let go of? And the second question is like it, but sort of more from Peter's perspective. What cost of following have you held your distance from which Jesus is inviting you into?